Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm joined by Dr. Marie Garda and Dr. Thomas Kelly. Marie Garda is the Executive Director of the International Initiative for Impact Evaluation, which goes by the somewhat whimsical abbreviation of 3IE, and focuses on the use of evidence in development policy. That's development as in international development, i.e improving people's lives in, in low and middle income countries. Before that, she was a manager in the World Bank's Independent Evaluation Group. And she's also worked at the Norwegian Agency for Development Corporation, NORAD, and at the Inter-American Development Bank. She has a PhD in economics from University College London. And Dr. Thomas Kelly is the Director for Policy and Learning at 3IE. He has over 25 years experience as an executive, as a researcher and a practitioner, again, in this field of using evidence to improve development outcomes. He's also been deputy vice president for the Department of Policy and Evaluation at the Millennium Challenge Corporation. That's a US government agency. He's been a consultant to governments in the Global South, an assistant professor of economics, where he also has a PhD and a Fulbright scholar. So welcome to the podcast, Marie and Thomas. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you, Toby. So this might sound like a bit of an odd question to start with from your perspective, but uh, since I'm totally new to this area, I get to ask the occasional odd question. Could you please uh, tell us about the field of international development as a policy area in general? What does it encompass? What are its aims? That kind of thing. Yeah, thanks, Toby. That's a a huge uh, question to try to summarize uh, very briefly, so I'll I'll give it a go. (laughs) Um, So basically, in the wake, actually, of of World War II, the international community started to focusing on what could be done to close the large economic and human welfare gaps uh, between industrialized and primarily poor, often agrarian countries. And then institutions such as the World Bank, uh, the EBRD, or rather the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, United Nations agencies like uh, the UN Development Programme and UNICEF, then later national development agencies like the US Agency for International Development or DANIDA in Denmark, NORAD in Norway, etc. They were founded to provide aid uh, to low-income countries. Um, Now, aid consists both of finance, but also of expertise uh, on what should work to accelerate the process of social and economic development. And the development finance comes in the form of loans uh, with more or less concessional terms and grants. What's interesting is also to look at the history of of emphasis uh, and areas of emphasis have changed over time. uh, you know, in early days, there was a lot of focus on large infrastructure, a focus on basic needs. Uh, increasingly, there was a focus on liberalization and privatization. And then uh, in more modern times, uh, going into issues of rights, uh, counter-corruption. Um, but throughout, the goal has been to find ways to help people in poor countries quickly improve their standards of living. Um, and in more recent years, doing so while reducing or minimizing the environmental impact of of doing so. Right. So, well, (laughs) despite your warning, that was an excellent summary. Thank you. It sounds like the policy is made here both at national level and at kind of international intergovernmental level. Yes, it's it's at both levels. Yes, so you have the international actors working with governments and then both governments and international actors working with international and local actors uh, carrying out development on the ground. Right. And we are here to talk about, and your organisation specialises in, um, evidence, scientific evidence being brought to bear in this kind of work that you're describing. 
So then I guess my question is, what evidence? What are the questions that need answering and how do you help to answer them in this area? Well, you know, in and, the and development field, it could be sort of what are the underlying causes of the problem my program is trying to solve? And, and the kind of evidence you would bring to bear comes from doing a problem diagnosis. Uh, it could be questions around which interventions have worked to solve the problem I want to address. And then you would look at the synthesis of existing bodies of primary evidence on these topics to see what has worked. And this is often called systematic reviews. Then there are other questions could be, is my program being implemented according to plan? Um, a very typical uh, question often asked. And, and what, uh, what is often done there is then uh, collecting evidence into what are called process or program evaluations. And this is where 3IE comes in and our specialities around issues of how effective is our program and for whom and at what cost. Uh, and this is where impact evaluations, which is in 3IE's name, and, uh, and, and related also cost analysis would come in. You know, when we do development work, we need knowledge along all these fronts. And some evidence will be very program specific and needs to be gathered with every program. So in a sense, it's not a gap that can be filled, but rather something you need to sort of look at every time you do a program. Uh, but when we talk about evidence gaps and evidence needs, we often talk about larger questions that hold beyond one specific setting or program. So, for example, what are effective measures to increase school attendance? Uh, or what can you do to increase vaccination rates? And this is where we can draw on evaluation of a range of programs for different settings to see whether there are some common findings. Now, the tricky thing is that looking at how well off people are at the end of a program compared to how well off they were at the beginning of a program will rarely provide an accurate reflection of the effect of the program. Uh, why not? I mean, that sounds exactly the right metric to me. You know, the thing is, other things happen at the same time quite often. Ah. Oh, yeah. So, for example, if you have a program trying to raise the income, let's say, of a smallholder farmer in Central America, you may see over the course of the program that income, in fact, increases, you know, exactly what you wanted. But it might so happen that there have been good rains during this period or a change in the world price of what they grow. And it may be due to that and not your program at all that made the difference. And so the type of folk, you know, evaluation that we focus on in 3IE is our impact evaluations that help control for these other factors, you know, so that we can figure out which programs are effective. Okay, sounds good. And just to say then, you know, that in 2006, there was a really interesting seminal report coming out of the Center of Global Development, CGD, which is a well-known think tank that looked at the availability of such causal evidence. And their report was detrimental. You know, it's called When Will We Ever Learn? And it said basically that we know nothing in development of what works, not really. And we're spending billions of dollars, right? But we do not know whether it's working or not. And so since that seminal report, a lot has happened in the field, and there's been a huge increase in this type of evidence. In fact, we, 3IE, were created as a direct effect of that report uh, in order to help uh, fill you know, the evidence gap. I worked in the United States government in an, in an aid agency for 16 years. And that organization worked with governments in the global south to try and improve the lives of their citizens. So we would, from the perspective of the U.S. government, work with a, a government to design an investment or a project with them. And then we would help fund it and implement it. 
And we as an organization, it was called the Millennium Challenge Corporation, took very seriously this charge that you should evaluate to see how well things go and then learn from that as well. So the types of questions we would ask ourselves were not just, did we deliver the goods? Did, did the government do what it said it was going to do with our money? But also, did we actually have the impact on people's lives that we said we were going to? So try to take things that one step farther uh, as we did it. And, and it is in that context that this kind of rigorous evaluation is really important. Um, and so there's been, since 2006 and up to today, there's been a huge increase in the number and the quality of impact evaluations available in the field. And 3IE has you know, taken upon ourselves uh, the task to collate all this evidence in what the, our development evidence portal, which has now over 13,000 impact evaluations. And in addition, we have, I mentioned earlier, systematic reviews, which actually sort of look at the body of evidence on certain topics. It has more than a thousand systematic reviews. So 13,000 studies. I think it might be helpful, at least helpful to me, to have some kind of concrete idea of what some of those projects are that we're talking about, the kinds of practical things that are being done on the ground that we're now talking about evaluating. A couple of examples that uh, I think are sort of representative from my time uh, at MCC. So first one from, from Southern Africa. We worked with a provincial government in a Southern African country to try and improve the delivery of clean water to households. This was a large public works project in an urban area. So we were putting in big pipes, going to smaller pipes, going to smaller pipes, plumbed all the way in, into households. That's very hard to do. Uh, the government ran the project very well. It was all very well designed. Uh, and the infrastructure worked great. We got clean water into households. And this is an area in which the problem was, was clear. Because people didn't have clean water, there was a lot of illnesses associated with that. So now with the clean water going into households, we had a lot of confidence, a priori, that there would be a, a reduction in diarrheal incidents and this sort of things that has a huge impact on people's lives. They can't go to work. Uh, you know, they don't make, they don't make uh, the living that they could, as well as just the sort of, uh, the sort of difficulty of living with illness like that. But when we did this rigorous evaluation, what we found is that, in fact, despite the clean water in the house, the diarrheal incidents hadn't gone down. People weren't healthier. Uh, and what we found was um, that although water was coming into the house clean, uh, the, the storage approach that people used within the household uh, was one in which they stored water in, in sort of large earthen vessels. It kept the water cool. It tasted much better. But as they served themselves from this vessel, sometimes bacteria would, would enter. So despite all this effort and indeed all this success in getting clean water to the household, there was one aspect that had not been accounted for uh, and we did not get the impact that we hoped to from that. So this is a lesson learned that brought back into the organization influenced how projects were done in the future when they were when they were projects focused on on water in households. I want to be clear though it's they're not all bad news. Not all evaluations are things you learn from because they weren't as successful as you hoped. Sometimes the news is good, sometimes the news is even better than you hope. And and an example comes to mind from from Central America. 
Uh, Maria mentioned examples of, from Central America there and, you know, what it means to have a counterfactual and so forth so you can compare really what the impact of your project was. We had a, a project in Central America where we were improving road connection between commercial centers and outlying rural communities. And the idea is if you improve those roads, um, transport is going to be cheaper. It's going to be cheaper because the travel time will be quicker. There's less wear and tear on vehicles. If transport is cheaper, you've got a chance to get more agricultural products into commercial centers. Um, all of that was the premise for this project. And we went back, we had a rigorous evaluation, and we found that it was true. That happened. Agricultural produce did make it from these rural communities into commercial centers. Farmers were making more. But there was more to the story also. There was more to the story because things were flowing in the other direction as well. Consumer goods, things as basic as soap and oil and so forth, things that people in rural communities purchased. And now they were cheaper. They were cheaper because it was cheaper to transport them back in the other direction from the urban areas to the rural areas. These were key parts of people's consumption baskets. So not only was their revenue going up from agricultural goods going to the cities, but things were cheaper uh, in their home communities as well. So I would guess, thinking about an evaluation that's done on a particular project, for that to be useful then as evidence for other projects, not just to, as it were, review itself, it has to be done in a way that the outcomes of the evaluation are transferable. And if you're talking about wanting to do systematic reviews, which gather lots of different studies together, those studies also have to be compatible with each other, you know, the results, the data gathered and so on. And that's on top then of the obvious criterion of quality. The study has to be good enough in the first place, well enough designed and executed to be to be worthwhile. Now, I don't know this field, but I can imagine, given the kinds of projects we're talking about, I would guess it can be a challenge to meet those criteria. But you tell me. I, I think it's more of an opportunity, actually. Uh, you're right in the premise that it's hugely important that when you do go and look at the evaluation in the way that Marie described, that you do it right, uh, that you do it with rigor, that you do it in a way that will stand up against critics, and you do it in a way that hopefully can be exportable to other places. So we like to think about um, the evidence having a very high standard, and that's one of the roles of 3IE. We like to think about making sure the result is, is accurate, uh, make sure that the result is convincing, make sure that it can be transferable somewhere else, and, and make sure that the timing is right. It needs to be timely to be useful elsewhere. Uh, I just mentioned four things there, uh, mm -hmm. accurate, convincing, uh, transferable or transportable and, and timely. If you rearrange those slightly, you, you get the acronym TACT. Uh, and here, live on this podcast, Toby, mm -hmm. we have just coined that TACT as a mnemonic mm -hmm. for thinking about how to do things. Right. <laughs> you heard it here first. Ladies and gentlemen, today the podcast, tomorrow the world. <laughs> uh, so, so far, we've been talking a lot about the supply side of the evidence to policy equation. It sounds like lots of work has been done there, so great. What about the demand side? Have you had some success in getting the evidence that you've been gathering from these projects into other projects? So, so first of all, yes, and, and there's a lot. Uh, there, we are sort of increasingly uh, managing that, but, but certainly to say that this is probably the area that we are finding now that there is a lot of evidence 
we are seeing that there are some quite large obstacles that we are facing in the area of uptake and use. You know, and I think it's useful to think about it from a supply and demand side. Uh, and just to talk uh, briefly first about the, the supply side, I think, you know, while we've come a little far away, I think there's uh, acknowledgement in the field that still more can be done. So, for example, I, I mentioned it briefly earlier, but but one of the areas that, that we've in 3IE have been sort of uh, pushing a lot on in recent years is that while there's increasing numbers of impact evaluations, very few of them talk about the cost side. So you can actually sort of talk about cost effectiveness of various interventions. As you can imagine, this is for decision makers who have sort of a constrained budget. These are the kind of policy decisive uh, evidence that they would need. And uh, and there's been studies done on the current state of using you know, or matching the costing uh, together with the with the effectiveness evidence. Um, also sort of uh, room for improvement around where we're mixing methods, where we also dive into understanding more the mechanisms through which uh, a program is, is successful and, and basically using process evaluations together with the impact evaluations to say much more about how the program worked and, and for whom, etc. So these are the kind of things that, that I think there's, you know, there's improvement, but there's room for further improvement. Okay, great. How about on the demand side then? Um, it's hard to find. There's actually so much evidence uh, and, and in so many disparate sources and some sources are credible and some are not that uh, you know how how can you, as a busy decision maker, you 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 wouldn't necessarily know where to get it. You wouldn't know uh, how to interpret the findings. You wouldn't know maybe necessarily to separate good evidence from bad evidence, etc. And so, um, so this is an area where where we and several others in the field are have been active in trying to provide user friendly policy briefs, bringing together uh, really the, the evidence in a format and at the speed that is uh, important for decision makers. Because they uh, typically want whatever evidence they want, they want it yesterday. They don't want to wait for an impact evaluation that, that takes three, five years in some cases. But there's been several large reports and evaluations that have looked at, you know, what are the, the barriers to use uh, in institutions? I mentioned earlier CGD that did the 2006 report. They came back in 2020 and did another report uh, with a working group that was looking at new evidence tools for policy impact. And they brought together policymakers, multilateral organizations, bilateral aid agencies, NGOs. And the one key challenge they identified uh, in this group is that development institutions often lack the institutional incentives and the consistent signals and role modeling from the leadership, you know, on the importance uh, of learning and evidence use. And, and, and interestingly, this was very aligned with a number of uh, institutional evaluations that have also assessed how international development institutions like the World Bank, you know, NORAD, German Development Corporation and African Development Bank, to name a few, how they learn and use evidence. And, and they looked into what the main barriers and drivers are. Interestingly, while each of these contexts and these institutions are, are very different, they have some quite similar findings. Basically, that there is inadequate institutional incentives, inadequate role modeling from the top of the organizations that learning and evidence use are important and to be prioritized. They also find quite consistently that success 
is measured by project approvals and disbursement of funds, not by results on the ground, just like Thomas talked about in the MCC case. Um, and, and often, you know, the thing is that uh, the, the, you know, the success and results often come at a time when most people have moved on in their career. So there's no sort of feedback loop to, to hold people to account for maybe a program that, that, that less than delivered. Yeah. And then, well, yeah. So there's loads in what you've said already, and I'd love to, to drill down into quite a few of those points. But just on that last point, yes, that rings true. And I think based on other conversations I've had with people whose job it is to try and evaluate the impact of one specific intervention on like a distant outcome in a big complex system, because complex systems are complex, <laughs> not just because other stuff can happen, like you said, between the time you do the thing and the time the outcomes are realized or not, but also because these things can take a long time to work through the system anyway, you know, like years or decades or even generations. I've had one or two guests on this podcast who've expressed skepticism that you can ever usefully do evaluations of that type on systems change. I mean, not that they're flatly impossible, I suppose, but that you can't get them to be robust and useful to policymakers in terms of quantifiability, turnaround time, levels of certainty of outcome. So it doesn't surprise me to hear you say success is measured by disbursement of funds in some cases. I think if that's the only thing you can usefully measure, I don't know, what do you think? No, so there are so you know there are systems that are looking at you know earlier indicators that are connected to an in indicative that you are on the right way uh, to meet your goals, so to speak. You know you draw on existing evidence uh, on whether these different measures around sort of a theory of change of this leads to that, these leads to that, etc. Some of this is institutionalized in most organizations in some form or another. So there are systems that are uh, evaluating the efficiency and impact and performance of projects, uh, both sort of internally in the organization and also uh, by an independent agency, uh, which again then looks at, you know, the evidence of whether uh, whether in fact uh, there was a coherent design, there was a coherent theory of change in place, there was use of evidence along the way uh, that would, you know, heighten the the uh, likelihood uh, of the results. I think it's a very good question, Toby. Uh, but I think we should be very careful not to be paralyzed by that question. Uh, yes, systems are complicated people are complicated. And so when you aggregate them into groups of people and systems of people and then create institutions around them, things are very complicated and they evolve over time in ways that may or may not be predictable. But there are some things we do know. And trying to be systematic about something like creating a theory of change, like Marie was suggesting, and thinking about what causal links are in a series of changes that need to happen to get a certain impact, is a way we can bring some discipline to the thinking about things like complex systems over time so we don't find ourselves paralyzed in front of them. If we build an asset somewhere, we build a road, um, that road may or may not last a long time. And it may or may not last a long time precisely because of the kind of uh, complexity associated with systems and institutions that you were suggesting. But as Marie said, there are some proxies that we can monitor that will give us some sense of how well a system is performing. 
Is there an operations and maintenance system in place for fixing potholes in that road before they get out of control? Is it funded? We can come back and see, is the money going from the fuel levy into the operations and maintenance budget? And is it going from there into pothole repair? Or over a five, six, eight-year period, is that road falling apart? These are things that give us some sense of how the system is functioning and whether or not the system maybe is something that we want to try and act on and bolster as well. Yeah, that's useful. I mean, also that last point of being able to conduct interim evaluations that you can act on, like to respond to issues before you've waited 10 years or whatever it is, that's important too. Yeah. I wanted to ask also about, and this is not a criticism so much as a genuine question because I just don't know the answer, about the issue of cost effectiveness, which you raised, Marie. It strikes me it must be very hard to assess across different projects or different policy options. I can understand how you could assess cost effectiveness within a particular activity. You know, how can you get best value for each dollar you spend? Are you measuring value in whatever way, health improvement or monetary improvement or whatever? But between different policy options or different programs which might have the same aim, you know, it's not should I buy mosquito net design A or B? It's more like given my aim to improve health, say, should I spend my dollar on mosquito nets or on piping water into homes or training teachers or building schools or, I don't know, strengthening local democracy or whatever. Are we anywhere near being able to supply or, or, or having demand for rigorous evidence that can help make those kinds of decisions? <laughs> let's, let's start with, I mean, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, th I think where we, where we first want to be is within similar programs that are trying to achieve similar objectives. That's already an area where, you know, in some few sectors, uh, you know, th th we have been able, like in education, there's been some more progress on finding the, the relative cost effectiveness of different measures trying to achieve the same thing. But in most sectors, we're not even there for those. I think, uh, you know, it would be great to be sort of further along and sort of saying, OK, we have this is our budget. You know, should I use it on education or health or something like that? I think evidence can only go so far. We can certainly sort of um, with more costing uh, data, etc., you can get to a point where you can start measuring. You, you know, you can do you can turn various a type of, of effects into benefits. So you can turn it into a metric, as it were, that is comparable across sectors. But at the end of the day, you come to sort of moral and policy decisions as to what matters. We can improve the, the evidence that is brought to bear. Uh, but at the end of the day, those decisions are usually negotiated at a different level where, where uh, you know, Evidence plays little role, too little, I would say, but uh, but it's never going to be the sole metric. Uh, uh, yeah, I really agree with with Marie here, Toby. Um, you're asking a very big question about how trade offs are considered and how decisions are made. And I think in most contexts, in most societies, whether it's in the global south or in the global north, those decisions tend to be political in nature. Decisions about whether we'll spend on education or public health or transport tend to be made through some sort of political system and some sort of social consensus around, around those areas. Within any one of those priorities that's been identified through a political system that say we're going to invest in primary education, there's enormous benefit that can come from understanding better how to get the biggest impact possible 
and also understanding how to do so in the most cost-effective way possible. It's a different question entirely to say, is the bang for the buck bigger in health or is it bigger in education? Doing a cost-benefit analysis across different sectors like that forces you to think about a common metric, and that common metric's got to be money. And if your common metric is money in looking across these different areas, you can do a cost-benefit analysis and say, should we as a society be investing in health or education, et cetera? But most governments don't work that way. A public organization can, though, or an international organization can ask itself, as a bilateral aid organization, should we focus more in area X, Y, or Z based on the return on investment? But that's a relatively narrow context in which that kind of highly consequential decision would be made based on cost-benefit analysis across different kinds of projects. Yeah, maybe just, Toby, I mean, I think one one thing that is somewhere between those two areas uh, of, of sort of comparing across sectors versus comparing for one particular outcome is where, and, and this is something that that uh, we in fact are, are quite keen, you know, to 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 be able to do more of. Um, in our, our development evidence portal, we actually have a system now that that we have uh, a taxonomy of interventions and a taxonomy of outcomes. And in theory, what you could say. If I, as a government or development institutions, what I'm interested in is, let's let's say, uh, anemia or, or you know, so, some outcome, then you can actually go back and say, well, what kind of interventions do we know about that actually has an effect on anemia? Which ones are, and are they all in the health and nutrition sector? Uh, and that's that's the exciting thing because typically what what uh, has happened in in most governments and, and development institutions is that the pie uh, of the budget is divided up among sectors and then you start talking about evidence and and what to do and what not to do but it's very seldom say you know having discussion of here's what we want to reach here's what we want to achieve in terms of objectives let's see across the board which programs uh, and which combination of sectors maybe are more uh, effective at fulfilling that objective at, uh, at you know, cost effectively. So that's something that we, where we also can be moving closer towards. Yeah. So thanks both of you that this is really helping me think this through. I, I think maybe I was a bit unhelpful in the random examples I invented when I was trying to frame my question. So what I guess I mean is, you have different levels of decision to be made. At the lowest level, if you like, you have a technical decision. We know we know we're buying mosquito nets. Do we buy this mosquito net or that one? And obviously, scientific evidence is the main thing here. And then I understand that at the highest level, it's going to be values-based. It's political. Do we spend on education or do we spend on public health or do we, whatever, do we fund our military or whatever? And I understand that those things are unavoidable political values-based decisions. Yeah, and you want that to be the case, I guess. You don't want it to be all governed by technocratic considerations up and down. But what I was wondering really, and what you were just discussing, I think, is how far up that hierarchy, which has the very technical stuff at the bottom and the very political stuff at the top. I'm using my hands to depict this here, which is not great radio, (laughs) I admit. Yeah, how far up that hierarchy can you push the influence of evidence? Because like you say, it might not be just like, what is the best mosquito net, but it might be what is the best way to fight malaria? Or one step further up again, what is the best way to address child mortality? Is it fighting malaria or something else? 
Do you see what I mean? So my question should have been, do you think there's a prospect of narrowing that gap between top and bottom using rigorous evidence? And it sounds, from what you both said, that the answer is yes, we're working on it, but we're nowhere near that yet. Yes, that's exactly a good summary. <laughs> okay, Brill. Then if I can, I want to zoom in more on the political factors at the top of that hierarchy. So one discussion that often comes up when we're talking about evidence-informed policy is how much space there is, like metaphorical space, you know, for science and evidence. And you get these policy areas, migration is a good example, where there might well be a lot of good evidence and we can see how it could be applied, but the topic is so contested and so politically unstable that it's just impossible to make use of that evidence. As in, policymakers are just not steered by evidence. They're steered by electoral considerations or societal or even like public order factors above all else. And I'm wondering whether in your experience that's something you see in international development too. Are there these hot button issues where policymakers, politicians with the best will in the world are not able to be in the market for what you're selling? I don't know if I can answer across the board, Toby. It's a very good question. What I can do is speak to some particular experiences we've had at 3IE with some of our partner country governments in the global south. We have uh, a program that we call Help Desks, which is um, a think tank type organization or organizations that we help support in, in some countries uh, that take questions from government and try and do a quick assessment of the existing evidence and then provide a synthesis back to government. So you can imagine, for example, during the context of COVID, this was invaluable for governments asking questions about uh, hybrid classrooms or about uh, social distancing and this sort of thing. And when we talk to the policymakers, who are the recipients of the evidence, um, they say they find it invaluable. And they find it invaluable because they know when they make difficult, controversial decisions, they're going to be asked why, and they're going to be held to account for them. And their ability to point back at the evidence from the literature that has been derived in a systematic, rigorous way changes the way they go about making their decision. And also, uh, it, it allows them to sleep at night as well. They have more confidence knowing they're making a decision based on evidence, but also they know that when they get hauled in front of parliament and when they get grilled over this, they're going to be able to point back to evidence uh, and not give the impression that the, the decisions were made in a vacuum. So political cover, effectively. When we talk to these politicians, they don't use that term exactly. <laughs> no, I suppose not. But that's what they mean. But maybe just to, to also say, I mean, I think we get to work with who we get to work with, right? So we, in a sense, there's a bias by those who work with us are interested in the evidence. And we've had sort of a very positive development of seeing a lot of uh, work and, and questions being asked related to, to migration and, and, uh, and, and so on. And sort of recently, you know, we've... Uh, developed a, a, an evidence gap map, you know, mapping the evidence around the root causes of migration that was asked from us, etc. And so we've seen that demand. But of course, I, I, you know, I think to be fair, I mean, you, you, I am sure it's very varied, and and, and also we are still in the process of seeing exactly what will um, the uptake be of the evidence. One thing is to commission it, and the next uh, question is then uh, how does it influence policies and the programs on on the ground. 
Yes. Okay, good to hear. So I diverted you both into that big conceptual discussion, which I'm really in the habit of doing. So thanks for bearing with me. But for sure now we should circle back to what you, Marie, I think we're in the middle of talking about when I first interrupted you, which is this question of take up of evidence into policy. So you've got the evidence, you can see how it's useful, and now you face these barriers, which you already outlined, or some of which you already outlined, in getting policy and making institutions to actually make use of that evidence in their work. So firstly, did you want to say more about the problem? Because I'm not sure I let you finish it first time around. And then secondly, how can institutions fix that problem, assuming they see the light? One thing I think that's important to keep in mind is that the kinds of areas that we focus on are the kinds of things that are primarily the responsibility of public organizations. So things like improving water quality or improving transport or education or public health, these are public organizations that are primarily tasked with those responsibilities. So public organizations tend to be short on staff. They tend to be under pressure to move quickly. Uh, it can be hard to be open about learning from experience within public organizations like this. Uh, it's, it's not easy to be a bureaucrat. People are mean to bureaucrats. But that's who it is that we're talking about in this context. And within this context, thing, things that, that Marie mentioned, like signals from the top and creating incentives inside these organizations are very, very important. So an experience I had with, with uh, my time in government was with the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which is an organization that did a very good job of building incentives into the day-to-day -day workflow of the institution. So they set up business processes that required people to provide evidence at different points. And they got very strong signals from the top of their organization that evidence mattered. And they created jobs individuals whose responsibility it was to make sure that there was evidence being represented in different programs. So those people's incentives were very, very strong. So overall, you had a kind of strong internal incentives. And then that kind of over time started to lead to a culture of using evidence because that's where the expectations were. So you're engendering a certain style of behavior that can become a culture of an organization if you create the right incentives internally. And then something extraordinarily powerful, which I thought was very interesting to watch over time, was how external stakeholders started to react to that organization once they saw that evidence was the currency of the realm within the organization. So when the organization talked about itself, it talked about evidence. So people on the outside uh, within the executive branch of the government or think tanks or importantly, the funders in Congress would ask about things they would start to ask about the evidence. And you got then a virtuous cycle playing out where the staff inside, the bureaucrats uh, who are being rushed, who are being told to go faster, um, were hearing that evidence mattered from the outside. That's really interesting. And then just really briefly, if you can, how did that virtuous cycle get started? Was it a political imperative from the top? Someone saying, please care more about evidence or, or what? The short answer is yes, but it was in the context that Marie described earlier of this report coming out in 2006, I think, from the Center for Global Development saying, where's the evidence? And that was roughly the time this organization started to get started and find its stride and took up that challenge to try and do things better. And 
the success story of an organization seeing the light and changing itself from the inside is is great. But thinking particularly about the audience of this podcast, most of us are looking from the outside into these kinds of institutions. What can be done from the outside to try and engender this uh, seriousness about evidence? That's exactly what we're we're trying to do in 3IE. We started stock-taking um, of institutions like the MCC uh, that, that Thomas just described um, and looking at how they are trying to address uh, institutional, behavioral and structural barriers to evidence use. And, and using this sort of iterative approach, we developed a framework based on measures recommended, you know, recommended or adopted in some cases by organizations that were striving to enhance evidence use, you know, and critical thinking more broadly uh, among their staff and in their systems. So what we came up with as a, as a working acronym that's for this framework is uh, the TRIPS framework. Um, and it's based on five main levers for change that are uh, available for, to organizations. Um, so we're talking about you know, training, resources, incentives, processes or, or requirements, and then signals from leaders, so TRIPS. You know, when you talk about training, you talk about training staff not only to produce, but also to use evidence and to appreciate the importance of, of having a critical mindset. Um, when you talk about resources, you certainly talk about, obviously, adequate funding, but also skilled capacity uh, available to ensure, you know, the collection and use uh, of appropriate data and evidence at the right times uh, uh, during a project process. Um, and then incentives, which is a, is a huge one. Um, you can talk about staff incentives, things like, you know, promotional criteria, annual performance assessments, etc. And, and to what extent their learning and use of evidence uh, is, is that actually sort of uh, appreciated and, and, and incentivized there. Uh, but you can also talk about institutional incentives, you know, like you could start, you know, uh, for thinking about, you know, public rating systems of institution as to how good they are in bringing evidence into their projects. And then on the on the on processes and processes is typically the one that all institutions do, because I think it's of all these things is probably the easiest. And that's where they sort of they put in processor requirements like you have to do a a quality at entry check and you have to in, in in some cases you know you have to sort of reach a certain score of, of evidence built into your project design in order to sort of be able to get your project approved or, or things like that but even there there's also lots more that can be done and and sort of to what extent do review boards for projects do they ask the questions to to staff you know like how do you know this is going to work what is the evidence that you're based on did you do you even know that this is addressing the root cause of the problem um, those are the kind of questions that are very often not part of the review process currently and then the finally the 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 signals from the top uh, and, and consistently throughout the, the organization, this, as you heard earlier, this is this is hugely important, uh, and and often not there. And and just recently, you know, which is giving a lot of a lot of hope, is that this is sort of seems to be picking up. There's a moment in time now where we see several organizations uh, that are uh, are sort of where you hear from the very leadership that you know we we want proper evidence. Uh, built into our processes. We want to deliver cost-effective, development-effective interventions uh, together with our partners, together with govern governments. Okay, so TRIPS, TRIPS. Are other organizations using this? 
And <laughs> to ask the obvious question, um, do you have evidence that it works? Um, many organizations are trying one or more of these measures, uh, trying to do something on training, trying to do something incentives, etc. But in rare cases, is it properly evaluated? And so we're trying to bring together sort of, is there some lesson learning we can have across organizations that are trying different things uh, to see whether that can improve and really get to that cultural change that, uh, that Thomas also talked about. And so that's where, where somebody, like an organization like 3IE, with a, a sort of evidence and an evaluative mindset, I think can play a role, is that, first of all, to convene organizations, um, to help them collate and challenge them to collate these kinds of evidence around their institutional measures, and also to, to see sort of what's the good sort of sequencing of, of measures. Um, because what we, we do have evidence is those who only done one or two of these have typically sort of, you know, I wouldn't say failed, but it's typically not there yet uh, because it, it doesn't seem like that's sufficient. If you just work on the processes or just on the training, but you don't provide the easy access to the resources, you don't have the signals and incentives, then you're not going to change uh, sufficiently the culture. So this is where we're, we're at. We're trying to sort of see if we can get uh, a more evidence-focused approach to the institutional learning and, and culture change. And, and we, we're doing this just to, to finish on that. Uh, in a Recently, I think it's just a few months back, uh, uh, the end of, no, uh, of November, that we launched uh, the Global Evidence Commitment, uh, GEC, where we have signatories from... Uh, currently from um, the Inter-American Development Bank, um, MCC, uh, NORAD, uh, FCDO, um, the UK uh, development, and then um, um, KF, the W in Germany. So five signatories and a lot of further interest that we are, uh, uh, we're happy to see. And this is what organizations that commit to using evidence well in their work. Yes, and to share and learn so uh, with each other. So building a community of practice uh, around uh, around this. You mentioned quite a few national governments, or at least I guess departments and agencies of national governments that have signed up, which is obviously important. But they all sounded to me like the donors, the givers of aid, places like Norway and the UK and Germany. Uh, do you have any involvement from governments of recipient countries, the places you're trying to help? I think that's a very good question, Toby. We definitely see that there is demand for this kind of information and evidence across governments throughout the global south and throughout the global north, but also that it varies enormously. It varies across ministries within a given country. It varies from the local to the provincial to the national level in different countries. Uh, it's not something uh, that we see a kind of simple pattern of. We're currently working, for example, with the government in Benin on a very innovative, very large-scale project for nutrition for pregnant women. And we see very significant commitment from the government from the inside in trying to understand what's the most cost-effective and impactful way to try and have an intervention in its own population. There is a lot that can be learned there uh, for the government itself, but also for other governments in the region and elsewhere. 
We've also worked in the past a fair amount with the government of Mexico. And here, the government of Mexico has a level of sophistication in evaluating its own programs that really puts them kind of at the forefront globally. And a lot of the learning actually has gone from south to north versus north to south in the evaluation literature because of the leadership from countries like Mexico in this area. Okay, good. So work in progress. If I could just add Toby, uh, you asked a question about what we can do, what we can do more. And I think leadership matters enormously in this context. Marie talked about a framework for TRIPS, about what organizations can do internally. But the leadership from the top in these organizations goes beyond just what they're doing internally. It can create momentum across across the field. And you also asked uh, what more others can do. One very interesting example uh, in the United States is that the Congress of the United States passed an evidence act requiring parts of the executive branch to use evidence and produce evidence in their programs. There's been other similar initiatives, I believe, in Norway and in some other countries as well. So for your listeners in Brussels, for all the MEPs who tune in to listen to you, this is the kind of thing that can be prioritized uh, outside of the organizations themselves uh, by different parts of the public sector to help bolster their initiative and help bolster uh, their efforts from the outside. Well, this has been an extremely interesting conversation. Uh, I always find it fun to hear about areas of policymaking where evidence and policy interact, but I previously knew nothing about them. And uh, I guess that's partly because I get a chance to learn new things. But also, strangely, I guess kind of conversely, it's also fun because it's reassuring to hear that some things aren't new, that some of the same challenges that I face in areas which I'm familiar with are faced by other people at other science policy interfaces uh, in other policy areas. So I do want to thank you both very much indeed for your time and for your expertise, Marie Garda and Thomas Kelly. Thank you, Toby. It's a pleasure. Thank you. The Science for Policy podcast is created by the Scientific Advice Mechanism to the European Commission. It's produced and presented by Toby Wardman, with additional editing by Nina Skorczak. The Scientific Advice Mechanism provides evidence-based expertise and policy recommendations to inform policymaking in the European Commission. This podcast is funded by the EU via the SAPEA Consortium. Our theme music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Shushenko. Thank you.